Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Seagram's gin making me happy. What about you, Del? I am drinking a margarita, and on this week's case, we're going to be looking into the case of Marsha P. Johnson. She was a trailblazing gay and trans rights activist who met an untimely fate in very suspicious circumstance. Marsha P. Johnson was born on August 24, 1945, to Malcolm and Alberta Malcolms in Elizabeth, New Jersey. She was assigned male at birth, but at the age of five, she knew that something was different. She started dressing in girls' clothes, which angered her father and the community around her. She stopped for a short time as a result of her being harassed by the neighborhood boys. Her parents were not accepting of the LGBTQ community, Alberta stating that being homosexual was lower than being a dog. Marsha moved to New York City in 1963 after graduating high school with $15.00 and a bag of clothes. Once there, she settled in Greenwich Village, but also had to resort to survival sex. After meeting gay people in the city, she felt that it was possible to be gay and came out. When Johnson first started drag, she went by the moniker Black Marsha. She later decided on the name Marsha P. Johnson. Johnson was from Howard Johnson Restaurant on 42nd Street, and the P stood for Pay It No Mind. She used it sarcastically when people questioned her gender. There was some conflicting information on what Johnson's gender identity was. She identified as gay and trigger warning, transvestite, and a drag queen. Susan Stryker, who is a professor of gender studies, hypothesized that Johnson's gender expression could be labeled as gender nonconforming. Johnson never self-identified with the term transgender, but the term was not in broad use while she was alive. Johnson was one of the first drag queens to go to the Stonewall Inn once they allowed women and drag queens in. They had previously only allowed gay men. The Stonewall Inn is a gay bar and recreational place in the Greenwich Village in Lower Manhattan. On the morning hours of June 28, 1969, the Stonewall Uprising occurred. The first two nights included rioting and intense clashes with the police. The weeks following included demonstrations and marches. Johnson, along with Zazu Nova and Jackie Hormona, had been considered the vanguard for the movement. Johnson stated that she did not start the riot, but joined in after the police set the Stonewall building on fire. The riots reportedly started at around 1.20 that morning after Stormy Delarvier fought back against the police officer who attempted to arrest her that night. The Stonewall riots have been cited as the pivotal moment in the fight for gay liberation and is still a very important point in the LGBTQ movement. Following the Stonewall uprising, Johnson joined the Gay Liberation Front and was active in the GLF Drag Queen Caucus. On the first anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion on June 28, 1970, Johnson marched in the first Gay Pride rally, then called the Christopher Street Liberation Day. One of Johnson's most notable direct actions occurred in August 1970, staging a sit-in protest at Weinstein Hall at New York University alongside fellow GLF members after administrators canceled a dance when they found out it was sponsored by gay organizations. Johnson was often confronted by police officers for hustling in New York. When the officers attempted to perform an arrest, Johnson hit them with a handbag, which contained two bricks. When asked by the judge for an explanation for hustling, Johnson claimed to be trying to secure enough money for a tombstone for Johnson's husband. 
During a time when same-sex marriage was illegal in the United States, the judge asked what happened to this alleged husband. Johnson responded, quote, pig shot him. Pig referring to the New York City Police Department. She was sentenced to 90 days in prison for the assault, but Johnson's lawyer eventually convinced the judge that Bellevue Hospital would be more suitable. Johnson established the Star House with Sylvia Rivera in 1972. Star House is a shelter for gay and trans street kids. They paid the rent for it with money they made themselves as sex workers. Johnson worked to provide food, clothing, emotional support, and a sense of family for the young drag queens, trans women, and gender nonconformists. In the 1980s, Johnson continued to play an active part in street activism as a respected organizer and marshal with ACT UP. ACT UP is a movement to help spread awareness of the AIDS pandemic. In 1992, when George Siegel's Stonewall Memorial was moved to Christopher Street from Ohio to recognize the gay liberation movement, Johnson commented, quote, How many people have died for these two little statues to be put in the park to recognize gay people? How many years does it take for people to see that we're all brothers and sisters and human beings in the human race? I mean, how many years does it take for people to see that we're all in this rat race together? End quote. Although she was actively fighting for LGBTQ rights, she was also struggling to survive. She frequently lived on the streets and had to resort to prostitution in order to have an income. Johnson claimed to have been arrested over 100 times in connection to sex work and to being shot once in the late 1970s. During the years leading up to her death, she was described as being sickly and in a volatile state. She would frequently get into fights that resulted in her being banned from various bars. When this happened, Johnson would often get into more fights and wind up hospitalized and sedated, and friends would have to organize and raise money to bail Johnson out or try to secure her release from places like Bellevue. According to Vogue, Johnson was diagnosed with AIDS in 1990. On July 6, 1992, Marsha P. Johnson's body was found floating in the Hudson River following a pride parade. She had gone missing days prior. What happened to her during that time is still a mystery. There are several theories connected to this case. All people are presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. The official explanation from the police at the time of Marsha's death was that she killed herself. They stated that she had no psychological problems and the stories from the people that were close to her supported this theory. They didn't have any forensic evidence to support the theory that Marsha had killed herself. And in 1992, after immense pressure, the case was reopened. Her death was then changed from suicide to undetermined. Her former roommate, Randy Wicker, said that Johnson may have been hallucinating or jumped into the river to escape harassers, but she never intended to take her own life. The family and friends of Marsha believed that Marsha was murdered and that it was a cover-up involved. This is due to her making plans for her future and the fact that she had a large gash on the back of her head. There isn't much evidence to support a cover-up, but LGBTQ plus activist Victoria Cruz noted that deaths within the community are not investigated as thoroughly as they should be. So Jenny, what do you think happened to Marsha P. Johnson? I think Marsha was murdered um, most likely as a hate crime, but I will say there is a possibility that the mafia could have been involved. I'm not sure 
how strongly I believe that, but it is something I just wanted to talk about um, for a moment. So in the Netflix documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, which I recommend everybody watch, um, Victoria Cruz really tries to investigate and she talks to Randy Wicker, who like Dell said, was Johnson's roommate at the time of her death. And he was feuding with an organization that I believe organized that year's gay pride parade and they had connections to the mafia. And he put that out there that maybe this was like a mafia hit because this organization was feuding with him. So could happen. We know that the mafia does go after people's friends and family to really send a message. And a lot of organizations are related to the mafia, especially, you know, in New York City in the 90s too. But I do think Marsha was murdered. Marsha did kind of like to hang out around the piers sometimes. And I know that is a place where a lot of hustlers go. Um, She said that she had felt like she was being followed and she had been harassed not long before her death. That to me means that someone was kind of out to get her, whether it was the same person who had been following her and harassing her, who knows, but that to me is really some signifiers of a hate crime. And like you said, Del, the fact that she had a bruise on the back of her head I don't really think she could do that herself. Um, Another friend also suggested that maybe an addict on the piers got into an argument with her and pushed her into the water, which I think could be plausible, especially if Marsha had been more volatile herself too. And I know that Randy Wicker too had said that, you know, maybe she was just running for her life and she tripped and fell or like the boardwalks on the pier gave out. And I really hope that's not the case. That just breaks my heart thinking about this. The whole thing really breaks my heart because she seems like such a wonderful person. I mean, you see interviews with her and you really, I can feel her energy just watching a video on YouTube. But what doesn't seem plausible to me is the fact that the police said it was suicide. She was not mentally well, I guess I would say, at the time of her death, but she didn't leave a note to her friends. They said that she was making um, plans for her future. I think she was planning to work with Sylvia Rivera um, to do some type of activism work. Suicide by drowning is like a less than 2%. So I think that would be just kind of strange that out of all things that that's what she would decide to do. Um, just very strange. And I agree with her friends that if Marsha had been killed today, we would either likely have justice or at least some more answers. What do you think? So I'm not sure what I think happened early. There's so much evidence missing and unanswered questions. Questions like what happened during the time she was missing? How did she get the large gash on the back of her head? And why did the police rush to rule it a suicide? I'm actually leaning towards it being an accidental drowning. Marsha did have a history of drug use, and long-term drug use can lead to increased tolerance. This causes users to consume more drugs in order to chase a high. If Marsha was taking more drugs than usual, then her mental state could have been altered, leading to her not recognizing the danger she was in if she was on the edge of the pier. And she could have accidentally fallen in, and because of her mental state, not been able to recognize that she was in danger. I akin this to someone who's going through hypothermia. One of the symptoms is that you think that you're hot, so that you take off all of your clothes, not realizing that you're putting yourself in more danger. And this could be the situation in Marsha's death. I see that being plausible. Um, and I know people always like to say like, well, Occam's razor, like what's, you know, the simplest answer. And I feel like that could be the simplest answer. 
Who knows? Um, I do want to say, too, with the gash on the back of her head, a medical examiner said that she could have, like, accidentally drowned and then gotten the gash while she was in the water. I guess her head could have hit the boards of the pier or something like that. Just wanted to throw that out there for a little more information for everybody. Before we get into our discussion, we would like to take this time to recognize the amazing organizations that are fighting for the rights of the transgender community. They include, but are definitely not limited to, the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund, Callan Lord, Transgender Law Center, and the Trevor Project. We definitely appreciate these organizations for the work that they do with the trans community and the wider LGBTQ community. Unfortunately, one of the first things that we need to talk about is transphobia. And transphobia encompasses a range of negative attitudes, feelings, or actions towards transgender people or transness in general. Transphobia can include fear, aversion, hatred, violence, anger, or discomfort felt or expressed towards people who do not conform to social gender expectations. In media, we often either see trans people as the butt of the joke or the villain of some sort someone mysterious with a secret to hide. We never really get to see them as human beings living their best lives. Yeah, and unfortunately, that secret part that you just said has been a shadow over the transgender community. It's, why aren't you screaming at the hilltop that you're trans? You're trying to be secretive. You're trying to do this. When in actuality, like you said, they're just trying to live their life. Just because they don't conform to what your expectations for gender is doesn't mean that they're doing anything wrong. And it actually means that you're a bigot. Yeah. And I guess to say like, oh, like, why aren't you being honest? Why aren't you being like out and proud? Well, it's not safe for everyone to be out and to truly be who they are, unfortunately. And we are going to talk about that a little later. Definitely. And connected to the transphobia piece is the trans erasure piece. And this refers to the tendency to ignore, deny, or minimize the existence of transgender individuals. Just because you don't experience a problem or something does not mean it doesn't exist. Listen, I totally agree with that. And it's funny, I was going to make the exact same point of like, just because you don't see something with your own two eyes doesn't mean it's like this weird thing that you can't understand. And the fact that people will make the argument of, well, I don't understand it. Therefore, I know it's something bad. Wait, what? How does that work? How is it that just because you don't understand it automatically means that we disenfranchise, disrespect, and unfortunately cause real harm to other people? Just because you are not educated on something. I know a lot of people think, okay, well, if I'm a lesbian or gay or bisexual, then like I'm automatically a trans ally, but that's not always how it works. Sometimes people really need to take a look at themselves and do some work. The gay liberation movement that Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were fighting so strongly with didn't really accept them. At marches and parades, um, trans women and drag queens were asked to be in the back of the march and to not really participate as much because the gay male leaders didn't really think that these trans women would help their cause and that demand for gay rights wouldn't be taken as seriously with trans people participating, which is just so crazy to think. But 
it happened. It was a reality. And even Randy Wick, um, Marsh's close friend and roommate, said that he was transphobic at one point and she convinced him that trans people needed rights too and that they're human beings which I think really goes to show what kind of person Marsha was. Right. And I think this is really exemplified in a comedy bit that um, Dave Chappelle did a couple years ago. And what he did was he was being transphobic in a way um, and definitely, you know, participating in trans erasure because he did a bit where he was like, the gays are driving the car. The lesbians in the passenger seat and they understand each other. They get each other. And then you have the bisexuals sitting in the back seat. They're just, you know, along for the ride, but people understand them. And then you have the T. That's what he called the trans community. He said, then you have the T getting into the car and the gays aren't happy because the T's are confusing people and the T's are dragging the movement back. And, you know, it's a sad statement that what he said is so true, where you do have people within the LGBTQ community that want to splinter gender identity off from sexual orientation. Yeah, and gender and they are two different things. Um but they often get lumped together. And like we were saying, you know, homophobia and transphobia are pretty similar things. And unfortunately, the combination of trans erasure and transphobia leads to violence against the trans community and the wider LGBTQ community. And one of the main facets that this comes about is through the gay and trans panic defense. And this is defined by the LGBT bar as a legal strategy which asks a jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity is to blame for the defendant's violent reaction, including murder. Sexual orientation ranks as the third highest motivator for hate crime incidents at 17% of total attacks and one in four transgender people will as well. Every year, too, we have the Trans Day of Remembrance, which is for um, trans individuals whose lives were lost because of violence. I believe in 2020, there were over 30, I believe 37, um, trans men and women uh, killed. And a majority of these people that are killed are trans women of color. And this includes the over 300 trans people that are killed worldwide. And... Make no mistake about it. This is because of their trans identity. This is not a random statistic that is showing just like, oh, this is happening. No, unfortunately, because of bigotry and because of the hate that is spewed by transphobe, trans lives are being harmed every day. Unfortunately, sometimes it is that ultimate harm of murder, but they also have increased risk to be the victim of other violent crimes, including robbery and sexual assault. I wonder if any of that has to do with maybe people thinking that trans victims might not come forward to the police out of fear for their safety with police too and being believed. 
I definitely think that that could be true. And it's also the thing of people thinking they can get away with it. So, and one example of that is the 1998 murder of Scott Amador by Jonathan Smith. And for you guys that don't know, um, I'm pretty old. So I remember when this actually was airing live. And what had happened was there was this show called The Jenny Jones Show. And it was a Maury, Jerry Springer type show that aired where they would have guests come on and reveal that they had a crush on someone else. So Amador had went on the Jenny Jones show to reveal that he had a crush on Smith. And after the show, they had a friendly evening together and Amador had left Jonathan a provocative note. Of course, Scott and Jonathan were friends before. So Scott was like, okay, let me see where this can go. And I think that's super reasonable. However, um, Jonathan didn't feel that way. And instead of just being a normal, rational human being and telling Scott, hey, I don't feel the same way. I'm heterosexual. I don't want to be in this relationship with you. He killed him. And the gay panic defense was used in this case. And they cited the note and Amador's homosexuality was enough to send Jonathan into a panic. He actually got um, convicted on a lesser charge. Then the conviction was overturned. And then his conviction was reinstated. But he was released from jail after murdering someone in 2017. And now he's able to live his life, even though Scott Amador unfortunately couldn't live his simply because he was a gay man and yet we have many people on low-level drug charges in jail for much longer and another case is the Islan Nettles case and she was murdered on August 17th of 2013 at the hands of James Dixon Dixon used the defense claiming that he got enraged when a friend said that Nettles was a man even though she was not a man, she was a trans woman. And he actually got enraged, pushed her, and when she fell, he smashed her head against the curb. Mind you, they were friends. They were not in a relationship. The only thing that caused him to get so angry was that a friend of his was transphobic. Again, he used this defense and the judge reduced his sentence from 17 years to 12 years, and he's expected to get out early as well. As of January 2021, 11 states have banned the use of the gay and trans panic defense, including New Jersey, New York, California, and Hawaii. Del, when I was reading this and just hearing you speak, it feels like this defense is victim blaming. Do you see it that way? I do. I see it as a way of people to try to get away with being really vicious as a result of their bigoted views and saying, well, if the victim hadn't been the way the victim was, then I wouldn't have had to kill them. What about you? I definitely agree. And I mean, in the definition, it's that the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity is to blame for the defendant's violent reaction. Which is just so insane to me. It's not self-defense. No one's life is being threatened because a gay man hits on you or a trans woman is in your neighborhood. I don't understand that. And I feel like if we are really going to try to use this like, oh, this like scary gay man is coming to hit on me, then 
should straight women be allowed to just murder every straight man that comes in contact with them and creeps them out on Tinder or doesn't leave them alone at a bar? I mean, I feel like if we're using this, it's a similar situation. Yeah, I definitely agree. Wasn't some of the people that were against the Me Too movement saying things like, this is going to completely change how I'm able to interact with women. I'm not just going to be able to go up to a woman and do, you know, basically whatever they want. Defense is saying that as long as you can point to a victim's gender identity or sexual orientation, you can do whatever you want. And no, a person's body is their own. As long as they didn't do anything to harm you, you have no right to do anything to them. Yeah, all you need to say is like, first off, have some self-control. I mean, these people in these situations were grown adults. You think we all know how to say like, yes, no, no thanks. Like, I'm not interested by now because that's all you need to say. That's all that Jonathan Schmitz needed to say. All James Dixon, I mean, his friend was the transphobe. All he really needed to say was like, I don't agree with you. And like, I'm comfortable in myself. I mean, I guess he clearly wasn't comfortable with who he was to an extent if he had to go and murder someone to make himself feel better. But it's as simple as that, really. Right, but I think one of the reasons why people think that they can get away with it is because transphobia is so prevalent in the media that it's seemingly accepted. Like, it's okay to be transphobic because why wouldn't you be like haha I know you had said before you know about trans individuals being the butt of jokes when it comes to the image that you're portraying of trans individuals you might think it's a joke but you have people that are willing to do serious harm about it and you know unfortunately I was watching a YouTube video, um, Samantha Lux. I love watching her. She's a trans woman and she speaks about, you know, how trans individuals are portrayed in the media. And one example that she just did a video on was that Tiffany Pollard, also known as New York from a bunch of trashy VH1 reality shows, went on a Zeus Network show called One More Chance and they were being openly transphobic and mind you this is a show that is it's a reality show but you know those are all scripted so someone actually wrote the script down I'm going to be transphobic an editor edited the show I'm going to be transphobic and then they decided to air it being transphobic and in this episode they kept calling a cisgender woman a man because they didn't like the way she looked. And they actually went as far as to have another contestant look at her genitalia to confirm that she was a woman. Oh my God. I I didn't hear all of these details. I knew that New York was in some hot water, but what the actual fuck? Like, how is this allowed right now to go as far as doing that to someone? That's disgusting. What a violation of privacy and like your humanity and your dignity like imagine the cis woman that they were accusing interviewed after that like was she how did she seem so they didn't show any interviews after and again I just saw some brief clips that were available free on YouTube because I refused to pay for the filth that is Zeus Network in the interview 
they have New York on one side and the woman on another side. And New York is saying things to her like, um, does it bother you that I think you're a man? Does it bother you that I know that you have a dick and sweaty balls? Like, that's what she's saying to her. Oh, my God. This is the image of trans individuals that the media allows to be portrayed. And it is directly parlayed in the individuals thinking that it is okay for them to hurt people who are trans. Yeah, that's confronting someone like that truly is just saying you are less than anything I am. You like you're less than dirt. You're nothing to me. I don't see you as a person. When we talk about transphobia, um, I think it's pretty clear that some of the roots of it are homophobia and toxic masculinity. How many times have we heard jokes about, oh, like if my son were gay, I would disown him. Or if my son came out in a dress, I would like slap the shit out of him. I've seen people say that on the internet and people say it as a joke. So we have people that will openly say terrible things about, oh, if my child you know, is anything but straight and cis. And then um, Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union recently, um, they were very open about supporting their transgender daughter and her journey through life. And they got backlash for wanting to support their child and supporting her being her authentic self. And I don't have kids, Del, you don't have kids, but why are you even going to have kids if you're not going to support them through life and not want what makes them happy? I mean, their daughter is not hurting anyone by saying this is who I am and this is how I want to live my life. Right. And one of the things that people unfortunately point to is this one verse in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, which says, a woman must not put on men's clothes and a man must not wear woman's clothes. Anyone who does this is detestable in the sight of the Lord your God. And unfortunately, and we talked about this before when we did the case of Doma, which was an attack on um, same-sex marriage, where people tend to use religion as a escape route for their homophobia and transphobia. And when people were attacking Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union, a lot of them used the same thing. But they're forgetting one thing. A trans woman is a woman and a trans male is a man. So while on one side of the scale, you do have trans people who are able to live their best life and really have their true gender identity affirmed and celebrated, you do have this other side where you have people who are trans and other people who are within the LGBTQ plus community really facing extreme hardships where they have to rely on some of the most extreme measures in order to provide for themselves. As was the case with Marsha P. Johnson, one of these things is survival sex, which simply refers to using prostitution as a means to earn money. LGBTQ people often face higher rates of homelessness and joblessness, um, particularly trans people. They don't always have the same job opportunities. Um, I think that's mainly because of safety. Um, I'm not sure if education plays a role either. But often when people don't really have anywhere else to turn to, sex work is a viable option. And Del and I are supportive of sex workers. We know that it is a choice for many people. But it's not always a choice for some people that 
are sex workers. Definitely. Unfortunately, a lot of the discrimination that happens is systemic and there are policies and procedures put in place that make it harder for trans people to actually live their best life. You have certain things like the gender question on a job application. I'm not sure why they put it on there. It's really not important, but that is one way where people are discriminated against. Where if you check the box of non-binary of other, you do have some people that say, well, mm, that candidate is not for me, simply based off that. Trans people are often working in lower income jobs too. So if you don't really have that kind of job, it's hard to get up more and more mobility and you know so on and so forth. Just like you're saying, all systemic. Survival sex is very prevalent in LGBTQ plus youth. Um, a study that was done recently in New York City showed that 50% of LGBTQ plus homeless youth traded sex for shelter or for money to provide shelter for themselves. And another 2007 study of LGBT teens in New York showed that LGBTQ youth were seven times more likely to have traded sex for shelter than heterosexual teens and that transgender teens were eight times more likely. So it's very clearly a real problem. And again, this is kind of a systemic issue too. And it goes back to the transphobia. I mean, how do these teenagers end up homeless? A lot of them get kicked out of their homes because they are not accepted by their families. Right. And that's one of the things that Marsha P. Johnson was really trying to fight. She helped establish the Star House. Its main function was to help reduce the homelessness of LGBTQ youth, specifically trans youth and gender nonconforming youth. And there's a really big issue of parents not accepting the true identity of their children. Sometimes that is a complete disconnect from them, and other times that is a violent, very nasty reaction. Again, like I said, if you're having children, I would really hope that everyone can think of all the possibilities of who their child may be and accept that. And one thing I will say... um, is that the Trevor Project has a really good guide that helps um, not only the LGBTQ plus youth, but also the parents. So if you are someone out there that's a parent and you are struggling with accepting, please just do your research. There's tons of research out there where you could study up on how to best help your child and how to best learn how to be accepted. No one's perfect and no one's expecting people to be perfect. You know, it's just the expectation from the wider society that you're not going to treat your child like crap simply because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Marsha P. Johnson and the discrimination and erasure that the trans community is facing. Make sure you click the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube. We release a new episode every Wednesday. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.